a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. Got your thinking cap? All right, reach over and put it on. I don't care if it's made out of tinfoil. It looks good on you. All right, I have my friend uh, Gary Welch. My colleague is here with me, and we're going to be talking about some things that are extremely timely. Gary, uh, welcome once again to The Brian Hyde Show. Yeah, thank you, Brian. And that's actually the most... Um, appropriate statement to, to make. Put your thinking caps on because we're going to get you thinking today. You know, uh, I know that everybody's hearing a lot about COVID-19 to the point that I'm, we're all sick of it. But the way that it is being used to reshape our world necessitates that we have some very thorough discussions about it. I know you came prepared today to talk about some of the numbers, hard numbers. This isn't just opinion. We're not just emoting that, yeah, that's bad. But let's talk about some of the hard numbers that people who are serious about governing themselves should be considering. Because it's absolutely important that we keep talking about it and keep preaching the word until we get this change of mind. As long as everyone says this is okay, we find this acceptable, then obviously we're not doing a good enough job of getting the word out. So I say let's keep it up until we get that change of opinion. And like I said, we have to promote not the, the disease itself, but the threat. What is the threat? How big of a threat? And we need to look at it from that standpoint when it comes to does government get involved and do they get involved the way they do? So where do you begin to try to get your mind around the numbers? Because this is this is the biggest battle of statistics that I can remember in my lifetime. Everybody's claiming the numbers. Well, the numbers show this. Well, the numbers show that. And, you know, of course, Mark Twain talked about lies, damned lies and statistics. Who do we believe when it comes to the numbers? Well, we know we can't believe government. You never could. You never will. That, that's just a, a common truth that we should all accept. But I'm even willing to work with the numbers. The question to me comes to more about what is the right reactions that we take? And, and a lot of times I talk about things like, you know, everybody brings up masks. And they say, well, masks are constitutional. Ordering masks is, is constitutional. They can do it under the Constitution. It doesn't forbid them. And I say, well, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me whether it's constitutional. Is it right? Is, is that what a government should be doing to its people and telling them, I'm mandating to you that you wear appropriate clothing or you will wear appropriate attire, regardless of your situation? We're just telling you you have to do this. I actually shared in the last hour audio from a guy commenting to, I think it was the Ventura County, California uh, Board of Supervisors, and he was given two minutes. He waited two hours to make a two-minute statement, but boy, did he use his time wisely, and he's a journalist. And I, I won't uh, recap everything. You can find it in the show notes. If you go visit the show notes at com. it's in there, the link to the video. But one of the things he talked about was he said, you have tried to prevent death at the cost of robbing us of life. And I thought that is one of the most profound ways that I have heard uh, heard it put as to how all those good intentions, look, we're doing something, 
doesn't necessarily translate into what we're doing is actually helping people or even sparing people from unnecessary hardship. Oh, my friend, you hit the nail on the head. This is our difficulty. This is our problem. And so what I want to talk about in this episode is the hard numbers, which is just this. Right now, we're bordering almost 150,000 people, according to the CDC, that have died from this disease. That's a large number. And we're talking about, again, when we talk about threats, we have to look at does the number rise, do the deaths rise to the level that it's a threat to our society? And as you're looking at that 150,000 number, you're going, well, yes. And, and one of the most popular Hollywood tropes out there is the callous general or the callous government official that says, yeah, we're going to bomb this village and it's acceptable casualties. You know, the old acceptable casualties. We don't care that hundreds are going to die. It's necessary for the war effort. And so when we're coming out and saying, is government, the reaction government did, the things they did, the lives they destroyed, the deaths that they caused from their action, is that acceptable? Is is the 150,000 deaths acceptable for them to do that? Does that rise to the level of doing it? And how do we do that without sounding like that callous little general, you know, or that petty bureaucrat? Yeah, I, I guess people are, I guess the, the bureaucrats are counting on the people being fearful enough that we're just not going to question. Well, of course it was worth it. What choice did they have? You have to make unpopular choices sometimes, but it, that, that doesn't begin to hint at the fact that there were other choices available. There always are other choices. And one of them was, uh, don't put this in the hands of government in the first place. One of the things that I like always pointing out is, do you really, really believe they care about you? What in their past has shown that they even give one small iota about your life and your, and, and your welfare? Has that ever popped up anywhere? Why only, now? Only in election years, <laughs> right? When the when the politicians are out making their speech stumps, of course I care about you. Until oh, they talk the talk. Yeah. Right, right. But when it actually came down to actions, do they really care? So let's let's frame this conversation about death in the United States. Why do people die? How many people die of what? What happens in our lives through actions that we take that cause deaths? And, and let's just use a one that we're all very familiar with, automobile deaths. So we go out and we get in our car daily. We drive at really fast speeds, dangerous speeds. Getting in a car is dangerous. But... Hundreds of thousands of people die from car accidents every year. Millions worldwide die from car accidents. Does that mean that we should stop driving cars? Does that mean that we should put regulations in driving to make them so prohibitive that we can prevent the deaths? And one of the things that I go with, and we talk about this in the book, if we would pass laws right now that says everybody drives at 30 miles per hour, nobody drives in the dark, Nobody drives in inclement weather. Those are the new rules all the time, 100% of the time, and only drive necessary places, back and forth to work, back and forth to shopping. That's it. No, no leisure driving, none of that. Do you think we would substantially reduce the number of deaths in this country? Oh, absolutely. 
So when they don't do that, does that indicate they don't care? How about us? We don't enforce them. We don't tell them, hey, we want you to do this right now. Make the speed limit 30 miles per hour. Where's the outcry, Brian? No, it's. but your point is very well taken. It's because people have uh, have looked at the, the risk and said, yeah, there's risk every time I get in my car to go to the grocery store. I might get in an automobile accident. Even if I'm, you know, driving the speed limit, there's still that risk. I accept it because the odds really are in my favor. And then that's really to the point of what is dangerous, life choices that are dangerous, and then what is a threat? Because government should react when there is a threat, when there's a threat to our society, when there's a threat to our country, when there's a threat to to obviously killing millions of people. Yes, I see government reacting to that. But what's that difference between what is dangerous and what is a threat? What requires government action and what requires just us being prudent? No, that's and this is where we get to dig in. Now, we're, we're going to be going to break here in about a minute. But uh, how does one start to make sense of the, the numbers out there? Because, I mean, look, people are going to say, well, yeah, yeah, but but uh, some deaths, you know, are, are going to happen anyway. You know, people who are aged. Well, dare I say people who are at highest risk <laughs> right now from from covid. That's where the highest amount of deaths have taken place, and yet we're acting like, oh, my gosh, this thing is going through the population, and it's killing everybody right down to the very young, which it's not. Right, and, and we've shown the numbers, and then we do it all again in the book. I, I don't want to sound like I'm preaching the book, but in the book, we talk about the comparisons between states who did a lot and states who did very little, and we're showing that the numbers don't actually match up with perception. So is it safe to say the states that locked down hard weren't really all that different from the states that didn't lock down at all? It wasn't some dramatic difference like, oh, well, look, they were spared the ravages of this disease. Well, uh, those states that didn't lock down, look at them. They're, you know, they're a hot mess. It doesn't look like the numbers bear, bear, would bear that kind of scenario out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease the next, next um, episode coming up, and that is what you're seeing is government playing God. Ooh. Okay. We'll be back. Gary Welsh is my guest. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back. Gary Welch is my guest, and we are talking about, well, we're talking about the the COVID-19 response. Not just the virus, but the response, how it's killing small businesses, how it's killing our liberties, and how if we don't do something about it, and I mean like stand up, toot sweet, then uh, we are are going to regret this for generations to come. Gary, you made a comment as we went to the break that uh, part of the problem here is government, or at least people within government, are trying to play God. Would you unpack that for us? So it comes from this enlightened elite concept, which our government is currently at. We have an enlightened elite small group of people that are ruling over us, not leading, they are ruling. And, And we talk about it as 
this is a socialist government because that's what socialism is all about. I know better than you. I'm smarter than you. You are too stupid to run your life. Therefore, I will run it for you. And part of that comes from no matter what happens in nature, what no matter happens in life, no matter what happens with great social events, we can control it. We have that ability. We can control everything and we can get the outcomes that we want. And it's a God complex, nothing short of a God complex. And this disease proved more than anything else, buddy, you can't stop it. You can regulate all you want. It's going to do what it's going to do. And nature is going to have the final say in this nature or God, depending on how you want to look at this. But there's going to be a higher authority than you, my friend, that's going to determine the progress of this disease. Now, what you're saying is making perfect sense to me. Getting through to the public, though, or, or maybe even just getting through to, to some politicians who may have a bit of a conscience left and, and don't want to, uh, you know, inadvertently play God. How do we get the message to people that it's OK to question those who are in authority? And sometimes, in fact, it's the right thing to do to tell them no. Well, considering that they've got it wrong and they've gotten it wrong on everything that they've done, I mean, if they had a track record of being successful and being right and and having great outcomes with no unintended consequences, I would be all for that. You give me a ruler that is that smart, that that's why, who's that wise, that smart, that great, that benevolent, that has all of these perfections that most human beings do not have. And I will gladly follow that ruler and say, yes, you obviously can prove that you know what you're doing. But tell me something in our past with our government officials, anywhere, local, federal, state, it doesn't matter. Tell me where they have demonstrated that they are smarter than you on what they're doing. And the reality of it is, is how many times have we sit there and said, these idiots, what are they doing? No, I, I agree. The, the fact that uh, they tell us, look, you have to just shut up and do what I say should be our first indicator that, uh, that maybe, just maybe, uh, they're, they're not, uh, they don't believe in persuasion or at least convincing us that this is the best thing to do. It always seems to come down to their willingness to apply force. And, and we're seeing this again starting to rear its head in various cities and in, even in some states. The mask mandates, we can talk about, you know, the closures of, of restaurants, closures of churches. Oh, bars? Well, you know, I guess we'll let them be open. I just, I have to wonder what drives the thinking from those in authority that, uh, that they can play God in the sense that they can tell us you're essential, you're not. And, we, and this has been brought up numerous times, and I know you've talked about it a lot, what is the thinking that says we'll shut down this small store to prevent the disease, but we'll keep Walmart open? Where are you thinking like that's going to work? How does in the common sense realm of reality, do you think that's going to be successful? No. By its nature, it, it already shows you guys don't know what you're doing. Did you have any specific thoughts on the mask mandates? Now that, now that corporate America is getting on board and, and using some of its influence to try to further that cause. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I'm always a big believer in that businesses, you know, it's your business. You can run it the way you want. But when they start telling me how to do things, typically I go into boycott mode. But 
here's the thing, though. I, I see it all related that this is all part of it, and, and especially these large corporations. They, they can absolutely get behind it because it benefits them. We, we should not trust them any more than we, we trust big government. I always talk about this and that everybody says, well, if you're a conservative or you're a Republican or you're this type of individual, you want to support big businesses. And I'm, I'm of the opinion, absolutely not. They're no more trustworthy than our government. We, we should always look at that with a little bit of mistrust. No, I agree. And, and that's because if you if you um, if you value your liberty, you're not going to just hand it over or surrender it just because someone in authority says you need to do this. And I hope people understand it's I know it's it's fashionable and we're not the only ones who are, are making the, the the case that, you know, government is in over its head here. And, and it's doing more harm than good. Let's talk solutions here for a moment, lest they think that we're just railing against government but don't really understand what we could be doing. I know that the answer is more simple than some would like to consider, but what can we do? Name something for me that we can do that, uh, that will measurably improve our lives without having to wait for government permission. We need to take control. We need to understand that there are dangers, there are risks, it comes with life. And here's the thing. There was a gal, and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce her name, I know, Alana Shayek. And again, we mentioned her in the book. She did a TED Talk way back in early, early, early March. And she is a person that knew, knows about communicable diseases. She studied the Ebola virus. She's like, like the eighth highest person in that world of knowing things. And she came right out and said, we already know, we've watched this over and over again. You cannot stop it with quarantines. And she said, you don't even know this, but it's already here. It got here long before you said it did. And it started spreading before you said it, because that's the nature of disease. And so when we accept something like that, if, if, if you take that information instead of the, the Dr. Fauci's who changes their minds every three weeks or so, but somebody who's been very consistent in saying that and understanding, okay, you cannot quarantine this. You cannot stop it. It's going to happen. What do we want to do about it? And here's the thing. We take care of it ourselves. Now, let me ask you this, Brian. Here's a question to just kind of show whether or not this, this does this work. Do you believe that there were individuals that said, oh, I'm not worried about this. I don't care about this, but who stopped, who didn't do their normal activities because the government said, well, we'll find you if you do. Do you really believe they said, oh, yeah, I'm going to obey it now, and I'm not going to do these activities that I normally did? Do you really think that happened? Not at all. So what did it do? What did it do? The, the, as soon as those, and that's what she was saying, that these individuals are going to break out. They're going to break out of your quarantine. And as soon as they do, there's always enough of them to keep the disease alive and keep it spreading. You cannot stop this. And what we did is we got scared and we said, government, we want you to come in and control our lives and tell us what to do. We should have never done that. In the future, we can't stop the past. But we should be stopping it in the future to say, no, 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 we'll never allow this again. Gary, we've got just under a minute here. Um, the book that, that we're talking about, when and where will people be able to access that? That's going to come up in just a couple of weeks. We're going to have it ready. And what we're going to do is we're looking for supporters. We're looking for patrons for the Brian, Brian Hyde Show. 
those of you who like Brian, like the show, like what we're putting, you're going to be able to support us on Patreon. And as a reward for that, we're going to give you the free the book for free. Okay, so you you will be joining me on a regular basis. We're we're not going to let this go. Uh, this is hopefully going to become a little uh, light of liberty for people to uh, you know find their way. But Gary Welch, I thank you so much for joining me, and uh, let's talk again. What do you say, Friday? Let's do it. Okay, stick around. We've got another thirty minutes of information and provocation of the right kind coming up. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Lines are open at 801-331-8113. You know, there are some days where it's like the windows of heaven open up and there is just so much content that comes pouring out. I have to really juggle to try to think, okay, what do we have time to cover? And one of the things that caught my eye simply because there are, well, ongoing riots in a lot of the major cities of the U.S. was an article on the Foundation for Economic Education. This is by Daniel Kowalski. The headline, it's time for cities to stop using cops as revenue collectors. Well, what does that have to do with riots? Okay, bear with me. I'm going to try and connect the dots here. Maybe I'll fail miserably, but the practice of using police as revenue generators is a major source of resentment against the police. Daniel Kowalski says local governments are spending more money than they receive through taxes, and many of them are making the difference up through fines and fees. For example, in the aftermath of the Ferguson riots, It was revealed that the city issued 90,000 citations between 2010 and 2014, despite Ferguson having a population of 21,000. In 2015, 23% of the city's revenue came from fines and fees. Now, this issue briefly gained national attention, but for a lot of Americans, it wasn't that much of a surprise because we all live in communities where elected officials will utilize the same tactics. In 2015, New York City took in nearly a billion dollars from fines, with fines and fees funding 37% of the city's budget for that year. Parking violations were the biggest earner in categories of fines, $565 million collected. Holy cow, I can see why nobody wants to own a car in New York City. The people who write and issue these citations work for the New York City Police Department. They wear police uniforms. Now, getting a traffic or parking ticket can ruin anyone's day, but it's even worse when you receive a, a, viola- a citation for a violation that isn't even illegal anymore. As of 2008, it is perfectly legal to park your car in front of a pedestrian ramp that is in the middle of the block. But the city's parking enforcement agency still writes $165 tickets for this violation. Daniel Kowalski says there are even instances of people who don't live in New York City, let alone New York State, who are receiving citations in the mail for violations that never happened. These injustices are being perpetrated by officers that are either incompetent or corrupt, but they're also being enabled by a system whose primary purpose is to extort the public out of their money in order to fund an oversized government that can't be sustained with just taxes alone. 
Now, this raises the question, do the police have ticket quotas? There's a belief in New York City that you're more likely to be issued a ticket at the end of the month. And it turns out there's data to back this up. Jonathan Auerbach of the New York Daily News received two years of NYPD statistics. And he found that there are, on average, 25% more tickets issued on the 30th than on the first of every month. According to NYPD officer Adel Polanco, the culture within the department is if you're not issuing tickets and making arrests, well, then you're not doing your job. This incentivizes the police to go out and find violations where there are no obvious ones in view. Now, New York City officials deny that there's a quota system, but at the same time, they projected a revenue of $5.86 million from parking fines in 2017. If that amount is not matched or surpassed, then politicians will blame the police officers for not doing their jobs as the reason for the budget shortfalls. Now, think about what that means to the police officers. They're well aware of the pressure placed on them and their role in providing for the city's budget. In 2015, rank-and-file officers engaged in a slowdown to protest against Mayor de Blasio, and they wrote 92% fewer tickets than they did the week before, along with 56% fewer arrests. You know what's interesting? During that time period, there was not a spike in crime. And then Police Commissioner Bill Bratton even claimed crime was declining. So what they're asking for here is accountability in terms of stopping police from being revenue generators. Every resource, says Daniel Kowalski, both in the public and private sectors, is finite. During former Mayor Michael Bloomberg's third term, the city's contract with the United Teachers Federation Union expired. Both the mayor and the union weren't able to come to a deal, and Bloomberg walked away from the table in 2010 because he believed that the city could not spend the resources to meet their demands. Now, in 2013, when current Mayor Bill de Blasio was running for his first term, he was endorsed by UFT. In 2014, he signed a contract with the union that included retroactive raises for the time during Bloomberg's terms when there wasn't a contract. These raises and benefit increases add to the city's financial obligations, and the political leaders who make these deals are responsible to make the budget numbers work to keep it balanced. They could raise income and property taxes, but those direct methods are, you know, understandably unpopular with the people they are applied to and could result in fewer votes during the next election. So they choose to go the other route, increase the projected amount of fines and fees. See, fines have a purpose when the threat of them is supposed to keep the public from committing minor infractions. And some do help maintain public safety, like moving traffic violations. But when we have local governments estimating that fines and fees will be between 25 and 50 percent of their income, well, then you have pressure to have law enforcement go on the hunt and look everywhere they can for people they can give a fine to. It encourages laws to be written for the sole purpose of having a reason to issue someone a fine. And public resentment seems to be more directed at the people delivering these fees and fines than the people issuing the policies that create these situations. When a police officer gives you a ticket for something that you think is minor, you're angry at the police officer for not using discretion instead of the bosses down at City Hall who are tasking him to do this. So here's the bottom line. You want to improve police community relations, then we should demand that projected income from fines and fees be limited to not more than 5% of total revenue in government budgets. This will force politicians to meet citizens head-on about the cost of their decisions. And it will not incentivize law enforcement officers to spend their shifts on the hunt for people to write tickets to. Fewer tickets will lead to less resentment. That will help create a happier community. This makes sense to me. 
I'm a simple guy, but that actually makes sense to me. The question is, does it make sense to you? 801-331-8113. Let's go to the phone. Hello there and welcome to the show. Have you noticed there's been no reports of any welfare buildings being burned down in Portland? Yeah, you're right. I haven't seen anything about that. I wonder why. Why would that Hmm. be? Why would that be? No, the, the reality is, Brian, municipalities are flat broke because they promise people a nice cushy job and we'll give you the benefits, we'll give you the insurance, and you won't have to work that hard, sweat, have any pressure, and the retirements that they've promised these folks are bankrupt. And people are just, that's the elephant in the room, and they don't want to hear it. I mean, remember when the government got shut down and President Trump shut the government down for a few months? But, you know, it was a couple of years ago, a year or two ago, and they shut it down for like five months, four months, whatever it was. And somehow and life went on? I remember. <laughs> but you remember how many government workers were the ones that were in line for food stamps and, and free food and the food from the food banks and because they were they were broke? No, I, you know, I actually saw people get up and talk in church about how hard it was to be a government worker during a time of shutdown. And I, I'm not trying to minimize the, the pain or discomfort they're feeling, but I thought this is kind of a weird venue to be uh, making your stump speech about that. Well, but what, what my, my, my point of the, the moral of the story is these folks don't save for a rainy day because they think there'll never be a rainy day. They, they have the mentality that Good times will always be there. And the fact of the matter is, I, I really hate, well, I mean, the truth of the matter is the good times are over. The, the, the budgets, I think, are maxed out now. The, the, these, this poli- the policies we've been doing is collapsing our currency, and it's no longer sustainable. We're at that point right now. New York City, do you know how many police officers retired this year? And guess what? They can't meet the budget, you know, qualifications or, or the what, what is being consumed out by these people retiring for their pensions. Yep. Yep. We're in big we're in big trouble, and I think that's one of the big things that it's the elephant in the room. We're going to have to either figure out a way to make it more lucrative for these people to come to work without maybe a higher salary. But get rid of the pension plans and the health care because the bureaucracy and the human resources and all the overhead that that creates is unsustainable. It's, it's basic mathematics. It's not common core. The answer we seek is to privatize. And that means that some police functions could be and should be privatized. If the public really wants it, they will find a way to pay for it. But it won't just be, you know, an entitlement, which is unfortunately what, uh, what you're describing. Those pensions are a form of entitlement. But it's not only police officers. You know, you're talking, when you're talking about these tickets being issued to try oh, to yeah. get the budget for the quota, it's going for the judges, it's going for the, the attorneys, it's going for the garbage guys, the water department, you know, the, the fire department. I mean, fire chiefs are making a quarter of a million dollars in unified police department. Wow. Got to stop you here, Rob, but thank you for the call. We will continue right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got a couple of different articles I want to share with you. I'm going to save the really positive one for last because I want to end on a positive note today. I, I don't know if it's the rant that I shared in the uh, the first hour. Not my rant, but but a very good one nonetheless from a journalist in California. I, uh, I Man, I'm frustrated. I know I'm not the only one. I, I just look around and think, like 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 our last caller Rob would say, why why don't people see? Why don't they really see and comprehend what is going on here? And and I'm not saying it's a conspiracy and only I can see it. It's it's more like there's almost a willful blindness on the part of a lot of folks because what they're being asked to consider is painful. And see, I understand that. I actually I, I get it. There are things in my life that I wish man, I'd wish I didn't have to acknowledge that. It hurts. And especially when it comes to acknowledging the things we have taken for granted, things that we always felt like, well, you know, I can hang my hat on this because, you know, this is uh, this is this is the reality. America is free. Lee Greenwood and I, we're good buddies. We sing his song all the time. And it's just not so. And that doesn't mean that the ideals that we want to stand for are all wrong and should have been rejected in the first place. It's just very hard to admit where we are right now, but that's the first step is to admit you have a problem. If it, Before anything can improve, you've got to be able to say, this is where we are. And that's a tough one. Saw an interesting article, actually. This is from overseas. This is from the UK. Norman Lewis, writing for spikedonline.com, about why we should reject the new normal and the old normal, old normal, rather. His point is that both of them are based in fear and distrust. And he says the culture of fear is a trap. We need daring and innovation at this point, not more fear. He says, for those of us who've argued that who've argued since the COVID-19 pandemic began that this crisis has accelerated pre-existing social and cultural trends, there's now nothing more urgent than challenging the debate about the new normal. The idea of a new normal understandably worries many people. Some would prefer to go back to the old normal. Getting back to normal does sound like good sense. Compared to the madness of this moment, pre-pandemic normality looks very attractive. And who would not welcome a return to the pub or the restaurants or cinemas as they were before? Back to shaking hands and hugging. But he says the truth is the old normal was really nothing to write home about. The old normal was not a picnic for the vast majority of people in Britain and certainly in the developing world. Economic stagnation, declining living standards and productivity, the culture of fear and risk aversion, atomization and social identitarian distancing, all of these things were well entrenched in pre-COVID society. In fact, he says the biggest danger in the criticism of the new normal narrative is that it accepts the old normal as something to aspire to. Now, that's not to say that everything that came before was bad. You understand what he's saying here, right? It's just that there were some things, some trends that we probably don't want to return to, even though they were part of the old normal. One thing that he points out here is that it's worth reminding ourselves that COVID, the COVID-19 crisis was not an objective necessity. It didn't happen in a vacuum. The human decision-making that took place was rooted in pre-existing trends. Yes, COVID-19 was a novel and indeed deadly virus, but it's not in control of anything. It is a dumb, <clears throat> unconscious, and vicious, self-replicating mass of cells 
whose only function is to survive, even if it ends up destroying the host it relies upon. And the response to this virus, the closing down of the economy, the locking down of citizens, the enforcement of social distancing, those were all man-made decisions. And they were decisions that sprung from the outlook of the time, which was the old normal. I want to disagree with him, but I can't. I want to say, no, he's wrong, but I think he's right. He says the trouble with the new normal versus old normal discussion is that it offers false alternatives and then presents them as self-evident binary truths. So apparently the question is masks or no masks, social distancing or freedom of association, working from home or working in the office, traveling on public transport or avoiding it as much as possible. In other words, do we go with the new normal or the old normal with the world defined by COVID-19 or the world as it was before the virus hit? And his answer is both should be rejected. Neither the new normal of reorganizing society around fear of COVID or the old normal of risk aversion, limits, and declining productivity can help us address things, the kinds of challenges we face right now. What society needs more than ever is new thinking, experimentation, and creative cooperation. We have seen an inkling of these things during the COVID crisis. Now we have to build on that rather than seeking to go back to the fearful past or forward to a fearful future. Consider how during the pandemic, artificial intelligence was introduced into triage in hospitals, cutting through reams of regulatory barriers. That was actually a good thing. The global cooperation and collaboration in the search for a vaccine has also revealed humanity at its problem-solving best. A new appreciation for the power of science and research may be unleashed among younger generations. That could enhance our capacity to solve tomorrow's problems. And this, he says, is the best part. At least for one brief moment in history, companies were forced to abandon their virtue-signaling mission statements and contend with protecting their workers, their customers, and their businesses. Mounting economic damage gave companies, at least fleetingly, a singular sense of clarity and urgency of purpose, forcing cautious management teams to experiment with new ways of working and operating. New thinking, boldness, and smart investments are going to be needed to provide new jobs and growth. Dr. Norman Lewis says, forget these normals. Forget being asked to choose between two different cultures of fear, the old normal or the new normal. Ask yourself why wearing masks is becoming compulsory when we no longer face a significant threat from COVID-19. He says this, this draconian step is the latest manifestation of contemporary society's culture of distrust, particularly of the masses, a culture that, by the way, was entrenched in the old normal. So forget the normals. During this pandemic, ordinary people acted in the interests of society, and there were flashes of innovation to tackle this novel, threatening virus. Building on these acts of collective responsibility and technological daring can help take us to a new future. I get it. It sounds very optimistic, doesn't it? But I think he's right. Don't embrace everything from the old normal just because it was the old normal. Now, having said that, let me give you a little shot of encouragement here, courtesy of our dear friend Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. It's an open letter to all Americans. And it's addressed to Dear Lucky. If you are an American, this, is, this letter is addressed to you personally. And Larry Reed says, You are an incredibly lucky person, and it's time you cheer up about it. We should be reveling in our common identity as the luckiest people on the planet. Yet raucous voices are telling us we should be ashamed of our country. Because some of our ancestors held slaves, 
Americans supposedly can boast of little or no past worth celebrating. Whites owning blacks cancels out whatever we once thought was exceptional about ourselves. But Larry Reed says that is rubbish, born of ignorance, malice, or both. For starters, it wasn't just white people who possessed slaves in early America. Free black people owned fellow blacks in every one of the 13 original states and later in almost every other state. As late as 1830, according to Harvard historian Henry Louis Gates, 3,776 free American blacks owned 12,907 slaves. In 1860, Native American tribes owned some 8,000 black slaves. The Cherokee Indians alone possessed about 4,600. He says in Africa, the enslavement of blacks by blacks was practiced widely for centuries. And African blacks were major profiteers in the transatlantic slave trade from its beginning in the 17th century, regularly capturing people from rival tribes and then selling them to slave traders. Google Arab slave trade, and you'll discover that from the 7th century until the 1960s, Arabs were kidnapping and selling people from Africa as well as from southern and eastern Europe. On the Wikipedia page for slavery in Asia, you'll discover that slavery has existed all throughout Asia and still exists there. According to research by Ohio State University historian Robert Davis, from 1500 to 1650, more white Christian slaves were probably taken to Barbary than black African slaves to the Americas. Only one con continent, rather, has never suffered the scourge of slavery, Antarctica. That's because nobody lives there. Now, he says, I don't raise these facts to normalize what's been one of human history's most normal but deplorable circumstances. Slavery is always and everywhere an unconscionable stain, an egregious error, a mortal sin. Every human possesses the natural right to be his own master, so long as he doesn't deny that right to others. And sadly, he says we may take that truism for granted today, but it wasn't the, ruling, the governing rule of history. Most people who have ever lived were serfs, slaves, or subjects of tyrants. The point here is, ours is not a perfect country nor is any of the other 194 countries. He says we're not exceptional for having slavery in our past. We're exceptional because of what we did to get rid of it. America's founders did more to ring the bell of liberty for any generation anywhere. They proclaimed all men are created equal. Now, we still have work to do, but it's a task we share with every corner of the world. This is The Brian Hyde Show.